0: Good evening. This is your host, Mr. Dark, bringing you a series of some of the most terrifying, strange, and true short horror stories of crimes, murders, abductions, and experiences. You're listening to the Dark Side Diaries podcast. The Disappearance of Granger Taylor Granger Taylor was born on October 7, 1948, from Duncan, Vancouver Island, a lodging and fishing town which sits in the Canadian province of British Columbia. Granger had what his friends and neighbors would call an incredible mind for mechanical engineering and was a master machinist. He was said to have been a gentle, shy, and brilliant young man who was known to friends and family as Gentle Ben. Over the course of his young life, starting at the age of 14, Granger would rebuild and restore a locomotive, an automobile, and an airplane, all of which have been displayed or sold to collectors. Granger lived on his mother and stepfather's wooded lake property for his whole life. As he got older, he remained focused on understanding vehicles of flight and the technology behind it, but Granger grew bored with human technology and would turn his attention to a new challenge, how are UFOs able to move like so many eyewitnesses have claimed? And how were these ships powered? According to his stepfather, Granger, in the later part of the 1970s, spent over half a year constructing and welding a life sized replica of a flying saucer out of spare parts he had found on his parents' land. In Douglas Curran's 1985 book, In Advance of the Landing, Folk Concepts of Outer Space, the author had said, Taylor built his spaceship out of two satellite-receiving dishes and outfitted it with a television, a couch, and a wood-burning stove. He became obsessed with finding out how flying saucers were powered, spending hours sitting in the ship thinking and often sleeping there. Prior to Granger's disappearance, he furnished the saucer and it would become Home Away From Home, where he would dive into his UFO research. Granger began to research the UFO phenomenon by collecting all of the books that he could find on the topic. He would try to understand the mechanics of UFOs based solely on eyewitness accounts and the pseudoscience available in these books. This became an obsession for Granger. He would often confide in his friend Bob Nielsen and Granger would eventually tell him that he received a message from space. A month before Granger vanished, Nielsen would disclose to reporters a story he was told by Granger. Nielsen would say he said it happened when he was in bed he lay there and got mental communications with somebody from another galaxy he couldn't see them I said they can't just be mental but he said it was like they were talking just to him and to his mind he was asking questions about the means for powering their crafts the only thing they would tell him was it was magnetic A few days following this discussion with him, an excited Granger would tell Nielsen that the disembodied voices had visited him again. This time, the voice invited him to a trip through the solar system. Granger would call this his 42-month interstellar voyage, and he was thrilled about it, according to Nielsen. On the night of Friday, November 28, 1980, Granger would express his heartfelt affection and appreciation to his stepfather Jim for everything he had done for him. Jim had no idea this would be the final time he would talk to Granger either. The same night, Granger would stop to eat at Bob's Grill in Duncan for dinner, and this would be the last place he would be seen alive. That night, hurricane force winds were reported in the area, and power lines were down throughout Duncan and the surrounding area, leaving the entire region in darkness. The next day, Granger Taylor was nowhere to be found. Granger's stepfather Jim contacted the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to report him missing. There was a note Granger left stuck to his parents' bedroom door that said, Dear Mother and Father, I have gone away to walk aboard an alien spaceship. As reoccurring dreams assured a 42-month interstellar voyage to explore the vast universe, then return, I am leaving behind all my possessions to you as I will no longer require the use of any. Please use the instructions in my will as a guide to help. Love, Granger. Without anyone's knowledge, Granger prepared two wills, They had detailed instructions for his parents on how they should distribute his possessions. The strange part was the word deceased was scratched out on the wills, and they were replaced by the word departed. Six years after his disappearance in 1986, truck fragments and bones were found at a blast site on Mount Provost. At the time, DNA testing was not prevalent, but pathology work by the coroner concluded that the adult human bones belonged to Granger Taylor fragments of his clothing were found amid the decayed material granger's mother would confirm the shirt was owned by him police would also confirm the truck vin number of the wreckage matching that of granger's truck some of granger's friends however dispute that evidence arguing that isn't conclusive and many theories still circle the strange disappearance of granger taylor The Pappin Sisters, Cold-Blooded Murderers. Christine Pappin, born in 1905, and Leah Pappin, born in 1911, had a special bond even though they had a seven-year age difference. Christine and Leah Pappin spent their youth in villages around Le Mans in western France. Christine and Leah grew up in a dysfunctional family, witnessing violence and various forms of molestation. Their parents were in a very hostile relationship which would eventually find the two sisters in the Bon-Pastier Catholic orphanage at some time around 1912. Although Christine wanted to join the convent, her mother would not allow it, and when she turned the age of 15 would place her into employment. And once her sister Leah would reach the age of 15, she would begin working too. It would be 1926, where they were both able to land a domestic live-in-made job together in Lamonts. It was for the Lancelin family. Rene, the husband, was a retired lawyer. His wife, Leonie, and their adult daughter, Genevieve, all resided in the home. Christine served as the family cook, which she was known to be a good one, while Leah, the younger sister, cleaned the house. The Papin sisters were considered by most accounts to be good girls and model housemates. Every Sunday, they dressed up and attended church, and they had reputations as being diligent workers with proper behavior but the sisters were also known for being antisocial. Christine and Leah preferred their own company over that of others. Every day, they had a two-hour break after lunch, but instead of going out to enjoy the day, they would stay in their bedroom. In 1933, the Pappen sisters had been with the Lancelins for six years. Christine would be 27 and Leah was 21. There would be many issues in those six years while working with the family. Leonie developed depression and the girls became the target of her mental illness and would be very difficult to please. There would be times Liani would put on her white gloves to check the dust. She would regularly give feedback about Christine's cooking, and she would make Leah go back and clean where she felt she missed a spot. The abuse would worsen to the point that she would slam the girls' heads against the wall. But on the evening of Thursday, February 2nd, 1933. That would all change into something far more sinister. Leoni and Genevieve had been out shopping for the day. They returned home that afternoon. And there were no lights on in the home. The Pappin sisters explained to Leoni that a faulty iron Christine plugged in caused the power outage. It was the second time in a week that the malfunctioning iron caused the electrical fuse to blow while Christine was ironing. Becoming irate, Liani attacked the sisters on the first floor landing. Christine lunged at Genevieve, gouging her eyes out with her fingers. Leah joined in the struggle and attacked Liani, gouging her eyes out as ordered by her sister Christine. Christine ran downstairs to the kitchen, where she retrieved a knife and a hammer. She brought both weapons upstairs, where the sisters continued their attack, bludgeoning and slicing the mother and daughter. At some point, one of the sisters grabbed a metal pitcher and used it to strike both women on the head repeatedly. The sisters had violently slaughtered both women. Sometime later that evening, Rene was supposed to meet Liani and Genevieve for dinner at the home of a family friend. He returned home and found the house dark and never went in. He assumed that his wife and daughter had left for the dinner party and proceeded to the party himself, never noticing anything wrong. When he arrived at his friend's house, he found that neither his wife or daughter were there. Worried, he decided to return to his residence with his son-in-law. The door was bolted from the inside and the men were unable to enter, although they knew someone was home. The house was completely dark, except for a faint glow coming from the upper level. It seemed highly suspicious, so they went to the police for help. Once they arrived back at the home, the policemen climbed over the garden wall and were able to get into the home. The police went up the stairs and found a horrible scene. Most of the injuries were on the faces and heads of the victims. However, the daughter's legs and buttocks revealed deep knife lacerations. Both women were horribly unrecognizable with their faces being beaten in. Teeth were scattered all over the room and one of Genevieve's eyes laid on the top stair. Investigators would later find her other eye under her body Leonie's eyes were found hidden within the folds of her neck scarf. Next to Genevieve's right hip lay a bloody kitchen knife. Blood covered the entire scene with it splattered six feet above the bodies on the walls. Experts estimated that the attack lasted between thirty minutes to two hours. Believing and worrying the Pappen sisters had met the same fate, they went upstairs to the sisters' room and found the door locked. With no response, they called for a locksmith. Inside the room, the Pap and sisters were naked in bed together and a bloody hammer with hair still clinging to it was on the chair near them. Upon questioning, the sisters immediately confessed to the killing. The police arrested the sisters and they took them into custody. Christine became extremely distressed and would have desperate fits when the police would separate the girls. The authorities would eventually allow the sisters to meet together. Reportedly, Christine behaved and spoke in a way that implied a sexual relationship but later psych evaluations would prove otherwise and state it was purely family ties and that they were sane and fit to stand trial. At the trial, the jurors took only 40 minutes to deliberate and found both Christine and Leah Pappin guilty. At the trial, a doctor testified and proposed that the relationship between Christine and Leah was a complete merger of personalities. Leah had lost her identity to the dominant personality of Christine. In essence, there was no Christine, and there was no Leah. The killer was really the joint personality of the two, a third identity. Leah would only receive a 10-year prison sentence as they thought she was under the influence of her older sister. Christine was to face the guillotine, but that later changed to life in prison. A few months later, Christine suffered a mental breakdown stopped eating and tried to gouge out her own eyes. Prison officials would eventually transfer to a mental institution. She continued to starve herself and eventually would die from it in 1937. Leah Papin, on the other hand, demonstrated good behavior and served only eight years of her 10-year sentence. In 1941, she became a free woman. She lived with her mother in Nantes, France, living with a new identity and many believe she passed away in 2001. This concludes our episode of the Dark Side Diaries. Please remember to follow, like, share, and subscribe for future episodes.